0: My name's Travis. I serve as lead pastor here, and it is good to have the church uh, all back together in the same location this morning. Uh, Last Sunday, 50 of our families were down in Rhode Island and numbered just over 200 of us for our annual summer uh, camping trip down in Burlingame State Park. This is a shot of our campground worship service, which was meeting the exact same time as the rest of us uh, were meeting here in Medway. Uh, if you weren't on the camping trip, you just take my word for it. It was a really, it was a good weekend um, for, for, for those of us who were there. Um, uh, a bunch of you sent notes and um, little reflections afterwards and really appreciate the folks um, who sent those along. Here's a few of them. Uh, one person wrote, hello, finally blessed with sleep, best trip ever. Another wrote, I had one of the best times of my life this weekend. Amazing experience that brought families together in the most unique way we are in for next year. And then one more wrote, fun weekend. Boys said it was the best one yet. Thought you'd appreciate hearing about this God sighting. Family across from us had to leave early. Dad wasn't feeling well. A couple of us pitched in to help him pack, and the wife remarked how much she loves this church family. I think she spoke to what a lot of people felt as I saw it happening all over the camp. Families helping other families share the load with setup, kid care, food, and the list goes on. It was a small slice of heaven parentheses balanced for some folks with the hell of actually camping. So, all in all, uh, excellent trip. Registration, by the way, for the trip begins tomorrow on our website under the news and events tab. Um, uh, if you weren't there, I'll be honest, camping wasn't, wasn't perfect. Um, the first day was kind of humid. Um, I also heard about a uh, fairly contained spider infestation in one of the cabins, and that had to be swept out. Um, Uh, After campfires, we got uh, a couple of good rains on two of the nights. So small stuff, really, seemingly inconsequential, uh, except maybe uh, at 3 a.m. if your pillow is soaked. But at the risk risk of being over-spiritual, spiders in the day, rain at night, humidity in the air, is any of that of the Lord? (laughs) That's what I want to look at this morning the small stuff, the seemingly inconsequential stuff. And I see a bunch of you already reaching for your Bibles, which warms the heart of a pastor, right? That would be, well, that's what we do here, right? We, we look to the Bible to give us the bigger picture, to give us a better understanding of, of life, and particularly this morning, the small stuff of life. Um, if you are just joining us this morning, man, I'm so glad you're here. I don't know uh, how you got here, but I know why you're here is because God chose you to be here from before the beginnings of time. I promise you, God chose for you to be here in this place. You'll be helped to know that this summer we are working through, like Adam mentioned, a book in the Old Testament. It's called Esther. Um, And we've seen over these last several weeks, we've seen this young Jewish woman elevated up to this role of Persian queen. So time frame, if you like a timeline in your head, we're roughly uh, 470 BC-ish. Socrates was a toddler. (laughs) Parthenon, still new construction. Uh, Great Wall of China. uh, It's not gonna be on the ground really for another 200 years And the people of God, the Jews, they're scattered across Persia, are now threatened by a royal edict that calls for their destruction. The catalyst for that edict was a very wicked man named Haman, who's something of a prime minister, second only to the king. And so he gets the king to issue this edict across Persia. Um, A few weeks ago, if you were here, we had our mid-season finale. Do you remember? I was end of chapter 5, kind of finished with a cliffhanger there. Uh, Haman, enraged by Queen Esther's adopted dad, his name is Mordecai. Uh, so Haman is plotting Mordecai's execution on a wooden beam that's going to be 75 feet high. That's his vision. Haman's wife, her name is Zeresh, she came up with the idea. And now, this morning, we're moving into chapter 6, that same night. Okay, from chapter five to chapter six. Still that same night, but now the scene changes back to the palace where we find the king sleepless in the citadel. And that's where we pick it up. So if you haven't turned there already, we're in Esther six. This is page 413 in the church Bibles. And we open up with a divine case of insomnia. Beginning at verse one, Hear now the very word of the Lord. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this. The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. Who sits at the king's gate? Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and he led to him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, <laughs> and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) It's a good story, isn't it? Is a very satisfying chapter here, I think. Remember, it's a true story. The genre here, this is historical narrative. It actually occurred just as it's related here. So, in, here in chapter six, even though we got a ways to go, because there's 10 chapters in the book, but here in this is the pivot point to the whole narrative, chapter six. So let me try and make it easy so we can chart our way through it. I wanna divide up the chapter by just the three times a day. Uh, This is reflected in the program that you should have received at the door. We got a little outline in there for you. Um, We're gonna call the first header a restless night, a restless night. Speaking of a restless night, back to camping for a second. If you happened to be restless, in a tent last Saturday night during all of the uh, the rains and your sleeping bag maybe got a little bit of wet just hypothetically it could have happened I'm sure to somebody and maybe you woke up Uh, in the middle of the night and you can't get back to sleep because your sleeping bag is wet and so you decide I'm going to check some email or you put in some earbuds and you're going to listen to audible.com for a little while. I wonder while that was happening at 3 a.m. in the morning did it ever occur to you you know what this my inability to sleep right now might actually be the turning point for millions of people's lives. I'm guessing those were not the words that went through your head. There may have been other words that went through your head at 3 a.m. while you were trying to sleep, but probably not those words. Likewise, I very much doubt that King Xerxes, also called Ahasuerus, was thinking much beyond, "Mm -hmm. I wish I could sleep. But he couldn't sleep. So he calls for a book. Why did he call for a book? (laughs) Why does he call for a book? If old King Cole was a merry old soul and he called for his pipe and he called for his bowl... (laughs) well surely Xerxes had a lot more options than that in front of him. Um, He could have called for a court musician to play him back to sleep. He could have played Monopoly with one of his bodyguards. There was plenty of those. Actually, if there's one thing that this book makes abundantly clear, it's that King Xerxes had an entire harem of young ladies and he could have chosen any one of them to help him get back to sleep or just amuse him in the middle of the night. But he didn't do any of that. Huh. So what are what are the chances that this night of all nights he couldn't sleep. And then to remedy his inability to sleep that he'd ask for a book. That he'd ask for this book. And that this is the section of the book that would be read to him. Remember big picture, right? Esther in your Bible Is a book where God is never mentioned, but He's everywhere present. Esther is a book, it's filled with wonders, but it's not filled with any miracles. Why? Because it's in your Bible, it's taking up space in your Bible to remind us that through the mundane and the ordinary, behind the throne of Xerxes, there is a much, much higher throne. So what we're given in chapter six is an Old Testament picture of the doctrine of providence. I always like to slip a little pure theology into the sermons because when we think in categories of theology, we learn how to think for life, right? We tell our children, don't just learn like stuff, learn how to think about stuff, That's what theology does for us. What we have in here, particularly in chapter six, is the doctrine of providence. Pro-vide. Pro means uh, before or ahead of time. Vide means uh, to see, like video. So God's pro-video, God's providence, is not just foreseeing, though. It's God's active directing. God's active upholding and directing all that comes to pass. That's what providence means. For example, John Witherspoon. He was one of the signers of the Declaration. He later became president of the College of New Jersey, which we know as Princeton. And he lived uh, uh, up on a hill near the college. Uh, it's called Rocky Hill. And he would um, every day he would make his way down the road and uh, hang out at the college there in his study or his office. One day, while in his study, uh, Witherspoon was studying there. A neighbor who lived near his home burst into his office, said, Dr. Witherspoon, you must join with me in giving thanks and praise to God for his singular providence. I was on my way down here. My horse was spooked. My buggy ran away. It was smashed against the rocks, yet I walked away unharmed. Witherspoon replies, my dear friend, I can tell you a far greater providence than that. While on my way here, my horse has never ran away. (laughs) My buggy has never been smashed and I've never been harmed. Isn't that providence as well? Now, two things. Number one, if I had just survived a massive car wreck and that was my friend's reply... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't think we would be friends much longer. But point number 1 notwithstanding, here's point number 2. The theology there is right on the money. See safe travels, you know, for instance. They don't they don't make much noise, so we don't notice them as much. Somehow in most of life, it's when buggies get smashed against rocks that for a moment or two, we become cognizant of God's presence in that, particularly when we walk away unharmed. But that's not, isn't God just as present in the quiet in the ordinary of your life? Hey, mom, how's your teenager's renal function today? (laughs) Hey, seventh grader, Did your dad make it safely on the train into work every day this month? The doctrine of providence is God's upholding and directing all that comes to pass. Yes, from time to time, loud and dramatic, but usually not so much. I mean, why do I even have the privilege of preaching to you this morning? Well, it's because when I was 18 years old, a redheaded co-ed at college caught my eye. (laughs) And I followed her into a campus ministry. Moved on from the redhead in short order, but I stayed in the ministry. Developed a great love for gospel work and then met the love of my life named Sarah. All of that happened in that same group. I had no sense at the age of 18. That's what God was setting up. But that's what God was setting up. Xerxes, listen, he had no idea in the midst of his insomnia that when it was read from the book uh, about Mordecai's saving his life five years prior. And so now suddenly he realizes, I should probably make good on that debt because when you were a Persian king, you wanted to make good on your debts so the people who were on your side would stay on your side. He had no idea that those decisions that night was gonna lead to the saving of an entire people group. But the God who is unseen is the God behind the scene. Did did you see it when we read through chapter 6? The Lord's fingerprints, they're all over this. So isn't it a coincidence then, at the tail end of that opening scene, that just as Mordecai is on the king's mind, verse 4, who walks in, ha, but the man who hates Mordecai named Haman. And that becomes our second header as we speed along here now. We go from a restless night to a decisive morning, restless night to a decisive morning. So Haman must have gotten up very early because this is very early in the morning, you know, walked the streets of the city, heading over to the palace from wherever his residence was. But Haman, he didn't notice the blue sky (laughs) and he didn't notice the shopkeepers coming out and, and, and setting up their carts for the day because all he's, he's just rehearsing in his mind the speech that he's going to give to the king about all of the different reasons why the king really ought to authorize Mordecai's execution on a 75-foot-high beam. Had someone offered a penny for his thoughts, Haman would have replied, if honest, I got murder on my mind. <laughs> I got murder on my mind. Though rich and successful beyond anyone but the king, Mordecai's refusal to bow had pricked Haman's fragile ego. You remember that scene in a previous week? C.S. Lewis says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Do you struggle with pride? I'm not sure, Trev. Well, that would be a good diagnostic right there. Do you get the pleasure from the good gift from God? Or does the pleasure come when you realize you have more than the next man? more money, more talent, more opportunity, whatever it may be. So uh, that's Haman that's in a nutshell. He's arriving at the Citadel. He's striding uh, into the outer court. He walked into the party like he was walking onto a yacht. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Average age, good. You had one eye uh, in the mirror uh, as you watched yourself. Gavat, you're so vain. You probably think this song is about... You're so? You probably think this song is about? His soundtrack is Carly Simon in chapter six. He really believes that this song is about him because before Haman can even open his mouth, fresh off the king's sleepless night, Xerxes said to him, Hey, 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 Haman, come in. Listen, verse five. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks to himself, hmm. 30 million people across this empire. There couldn't possibly be someone the king wants to honor more than he wants to honor me. So he says to himself, I've got wealth. I've already got a decree that everybody's supposed to bow down to me. Mm, What I want now are the king's clothes, which were believed to carry the power of the gods with them when they had been worn by the king already, and the king's horse, and the royal crown or headdress or crest that was placed upon the horse when the king was upon the horse, that's what what I would like. And so that's what he he says to the king. Now, folks, you don't have to be a genius at this point to read between the lines. If someone said to you, hey, I want to wear the presidential pen, and I want to ride in the presidential limo, and I want the presidential flag flying from the limo when I'm in there, wouldn't you begin to, to guess maybe what this person really wants is to be the president? And if Xerxes was a wiser king, he would have realized what Haman was after here, aspiration to be the king himself. But Xerxes is not a wise man as the preceding five chapters have made abundantly clear. So now we have this perfect moment of comic timing. And I'm glad, we, I'm glad you got it as we read through it. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and horse, as you have said, and do to Mordecai the Jew. And that's the twist. Okay, that's the pivot point. It's actually a literary technique here called peripety few of our English majors may be familiar with that technique. Uh, you've seen it a hundred times, everywhere from Shakespeare to, uh, to last week's blockbuster. Peripity means a sudden turn of events that reverses the expected or intended outcome. A sudden turn of events that reverses the expected or intended outcome. Think Ethan Hunt ripping off the Mission Impossible mask. Think uh, going back away is Bruce Willis realizing he's the ghost himself. This twist—it was not—it was not how Haman expected things to go. And he walked into the king's citadel, the king's throne room. He walked in expecting to crucify the guy, and now he's being told you got to organize the guy's parade. <laughs> He wanted to hang Mordecai. And now he's being told, you've got to honor Mordecai. Which drops us right into the last point of the chapter. You got a restless night. You got a decisive morning. Last point on the outline. An infuriating day. If you're Haman, an infuriating day. Back to the camping (laughs) trip. I told you uh, how nighttime rain was kind of annoying. How about the rain on June 17th, 1815 in Belgium? You're thinking, Trav, I really could care less about a weather forecast from 203 years ago. Mm. One particular Frenchman cared about it because up to this point, he'd had a whole lot of success predicated largely on his brilliant use of artillery. But on June 18th, because of all of the rains on June 17th, The roads were soggy and mired. The Frenchman couldn't get his artillery into place for several hours later than he needed to. And because of that, Napoleon lost to the British and the Prussians at a place called. Back to the camping trip. I told you how a few spiders were kind of annoying. Charles Spurgeon, he tells of a dissenting minister, 1800s England, um, uh, who was going to be arrested for preaching the gospel, and so he fled uh, the arrest. He arrived at an old abandoned malt house uh, where he found an opening, and he crawled down into the kiln, and while he lay there, just awaiting his pursuers, he looked up, and he saw a single spider (laughs) moving across the opening of that kiln with a thread and then back again and as the, the minutes ticked by he watched that little spider weave a web on the opening of that kiln at last the soldiers came in cursing and hollering and just as one was about to go into the kiln the soldier behind beside him shouted don't bother you fool don't you see the untouched web Back to the camping trip. I told you how humidity was not that awesome the first day. Mm. How about northern France, 1940, in a place called Dunkirk? There was a Haman at that time, too. He was seeking to slaughter Jews. Um, Except this Haman had panzer tanks and infantry surrounding three French armies, one British army, and a few Belgian troops. But inexplicably to the German infantry, Hitler gave the command to halt the advance and not take the armies, who had no chance whatsoever. Turns out it was because Hitler wanted his vaunted air force, the Luftwaffe, to get the credit and to get the glory. But instead, a cold front mixed with the humidity and fog rolled in off the water. And for the next three days, three straight days, pouring rain and thick fog made it impossible for the planes to attack, except for one afternoon, several hours one afternoon, when when they were able to attack. But the bombs that were being dropped, they impacted the beach. They were so heavy that they went so far into the sand that the explosion did minimal damage. And of course, combined with all of the private boats they came across, the armies were saved. <laughs> the rains in Belgium, the spider in a kiln, the humidity and fog in northern France, absent any one of these events, personal world history would have been radically changed. Yet God's providence led to God's peripety, a sudden turn of events that reverses the intended or expected outcome. And so, here we have Haman walking around the king's horse declaring the honor of Mordecai and by verse 13, even his wife, Zeresh, is able to recognize where all this is headed. And she says to him in so many words, Honey, you're done. <laughs> it's fantastic. Because the, because the king couldn't sleep. He asked for a book, out of which was read a passage just before Haman walked into the palace. Any of those events don't happen. Mordecai is a dead man. And all the Jews soon after. The enemies of God plot the destruction of God's people. The living God plans the salvation of his people. It's the story of Esther. Now strike that. It's the story of the whole Bible. And when you pause to look at it, isn't it true, my friends, that if we do the work of stepping out of the biblical text for a minute, isn't it also true in your own life? When you look back over your shoulder? that God seems to work through seemingly insignificant events, even hard events. We all know nothing in this life is certain, but we know the one who is certain. Haman wanted to be like the king. Good. (laughs) Problem is, he chose the wrong king because behind Xerxes, there's a much, much higher throne. So try to picture it. So where I finish up. Um, Beg invites us to imagine a couple of Persian guys sitting at a cafe there in Susa. Around the time, all these events are unfolding. But, you know, out of the spotlight, these folks. Just two guys, they're having a Persian coffee, and they're asking one another. The one says to his friend, hey, <laughs> do you think anyone's actually in charge up there in the palace? The the page one headline just last month said that all the Jews across the empire are supposed to be eradicated. That was page one last month. But then page three just yesterday says that Mordecai, you know him? He's the wee guy at the king's gate. He was being honored by Haman. You know him? He's the guy with the big mouth and the big head. And Haman hates Mordecai but Haman was the one who was honoring Mordecai. And his friend across the table there at the Susa Cafe says, wait wait a second, the king was honoring Mordecai? I thought Mordecai was a Jew. And his friend replies, yes, exactly. This king, I tell you, I don't, I, don't I don't think he knows what's happening. <laughs> I, I think he just changes his mind from one day to the next. I'm really starting to question whether the guy in the palace there actually has a plan here. Got a bit of a contemporary ring to it, doesn't it? Folks, there's so much hope for us here in chapter 6. God exalts who he chooses to exalt. God brings low who he chooses to bring low. God uses rain Spiders, humidity, redheads, (laughs) all unto Ephesians 1 to bring forth the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Peripety is a sudden turn of events that reverses an unexpected or creates an unintended outcome. Usually it comes at the end of a story, end of a movie. But here, it's actually a little early. It comes in chapter six. Usually, peripety occurs in the story or in the movie at a really dramatic moment. Here, just kind of in the quiet of the night and the decisiveness of the morning. It's almost unnoticed. And then we come to this table. And we remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The quiet of Bethlehem. The decisiveness of Calvary. Well, that, that was the ultimate peripety, wasn't it? That, that was the ultimate reversal. And much like Haman bowing down to Mordecai, the Christian's faith knows that there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, my friend, if you haven't bent the knee yet, why wait? Why not today? Mercy, fall and me, washing all my shame. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my